You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 21. Today we are in Santiago de Compostela. Well, where are we, Daniel, for the last time in this Vuelta España? We are in Santiago de Compostela, which is the, well, the ultimate destination of the Vuelta España. Ultimate destination, of course, well, for some people, of the Camino de Santiago. 600 people a day, almost quarter of a million people a year make the pilgrimage to end up here. It's a pilgrimage that the Vuelta makes from time to time as well. Not all that often. I mean, the Vuelta usually finishes in Madrid. It's not as fluid as the Giro, but far more so than the Tour de France. And being here just highlights for me what a great thing it is, I think, for a Grand Tour to finish outside the capital city, because Madrid, like Paris, always feels a little bit flat. Whereas here in Santiago de Compostela, there's a great atmosphere, uh, you know, it's a, the right size of town. Um, the Vuelta's really taken over, there are lots of crowds out, and it's a fantastic setting, isn't it? It is, Rich. Uh, the Vuelta, as you say, doesn't often finish outside Madrid. Um, only three times, in fact, since 1990, well, 1987. Um, and all three times, those exceptions have been Santiago de Compostela. Prior to that, it did often finish outside Madrid, finished in the Basque Country most years for a long stretch from 1955 to 1978, but since then, it's mainly been Madrid. Pilgrimage, the idea of a pilgrimage is going to be the theme of our final episode from the, the Vuelta, and we're going to try and marry that idea to the, the Vuelta itself and, and the riders who've been on their own sort of pilgrimage, but they're also six pilgrims of the Vuelta who we're going to be highlighting and talking about in tonight's episode our final one from the Vuelta our final one from the third Grand Tour of the year, although there will be a, a final final episode, the final episode of Kilometer Zero featuring the, the Riders Diaries the Audio Diarists will come out on Tuesday, so stay tuned for that it's a time trial tonight, 33 kilometers long, the first Riders are off, we're in the shadows of the Cathedral where the Riders will finish soon and uh, we'll get up there and interview some of them. But instead of a tale of the etapa tonight, we thought we'd do a tale of the etapas, the, the, all the stages, if we can cast our minds back. It's not a chronicle of all the meals we've eaten over the last three, three weeks, though it sounds as though it could be. That would be quite quick, wouldn't it? Croquetas, jamon. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, and, well, we started in Burgos. Who, who, who could forget our first podcast actually opened with the first rider going off in the time trial um, so there's a, a neat bit of symmetry here, the, only the second time trial of this Vuelta, and here it is. And this was the tour, the Vuelta of the cathedrals, that's what it was billed as, described as, and of course we, we started there in Burgos in front of a very famous cathedral, and we're going to finish, or the race is going to finish in front of one this afternoon, or this evening. We started with a time trial, of course, in Burgos. Um, that was a short time trial, 7.1 kilometres, and it saw uh, an expected result. Primoz Roglic roglified the, the field to win the individual time trial and take the first red jersey of the Vuelta. The following day, a bunch sprint. Jasper Philipson was the winner, um, ahead of Fabio Jakobsen, who we'd spoken to in Burgos, and his story was one we were going to follow with great interest, of course, because this was his first Grand Tour since his terrible crash at the Tour of Poland last year. Next day, Rich, a surprise stage winner, Ryan Taramai, and a surprise red jersey wearer, Ryan Taramai. There we saw the first 
hints of who might win La Vuelta a España with Emmerich Mass attacking on the top of the Picon Blanco climb and getting a bit of a gap over Primoz Roglic and some of the other GC contenders but not much had happened on that front on the GC front and not much would happen for quite a while yet in the Vuelta Point day we saw that emotional win for Fabio Jakobsen, um, a real kind of what well, he called it a fairy tale coming back to a Grand Tour and winning a stage, a huge moment. And we were it wasn't the last, of course, we would see of Jakobsen in this Vuelta. He's one of our pilgrims who we'll be uh, talking about a bit more later in the episode. Following day, another sprint, but this time it was Jasper Philipson who was the fastest, uh, an exemplary lead out from his Alpecin Phoenix team. And well, we saw another kind of pseudo sprinter win one day later at the Alto de Cullera. The clue was in the name. It wasn't a bunch sprint. It was on top of a, a very steep hill and Magnus Court had been in a breakaway that day and he managed to fend off the chasing peloton and in particular Primoz Roglic who nonetheless did come home hot on his heels. Following day we saw Michael Storer win the first stage of, of his Vuelta, not the last but a, a very good solo win from a rider who has, as we keep being told, a huge engine and is just starting to um, deliver on his potential now. Just before he leaves Team DSM to join Group Hama FTJ next year. Primoz Roglic by now was back in the red jersey having taken it from Kenny Ellison who had taken it from Ryan Taramai who unfortunately crashed um, just outside uh, three kilometres so he lost time uh, the jersey pass on to Kenny Ellison for just one day and then back onto the shoulders of Roglic where we imagined it might stay for the rest of the race. There's another sprint win for Jakobsen at La Manga on stage eight and the following day we moved into the province of Almeria and the Alto de Belefica, the first major mountain stage of La Vuelta and we got further hints there of who as to who might finally take this Vuelta a España when Primoz Roglic and Enric Mas proved the best of the GC favourites and, and they gained significant time around 40 seconds on uh, Jack Haig, Superman Lopez, Gino Maida and others. And indeed Roglic remained at that point in the red jersey. Following the rest day, another stage win for Michael Storer from a, a big breakaway that claimed an awful lot of time. And in fact, the, the red jersey passed on to Odd Christian Eiking that day. He was in that breakaway. And so Roglic relinquished red, but also had a dramatic day himself. He crashed. He did. The king in waiting of this welter, or the rider who we thought at that point was the king in waiting, finished with a bit of a wonky crown that day, having crashed on the descent. But it didn't seem to affect him, did it? The next day, Rich, at Val de Peñas de Jaén, that very steep finish through a little village which was duly roglified. He won the stage that day but did not take back the red jersey which remained on the shoulders of odd Christian Eiking. The rider who was roglified was Magnus Court who'd been away and looked like he might hold on for the win. He'd attacked that day from a, a small breakaway uh, similar to his first stage win. But the following day, he won from a, a bigger group in a sprint. He's a, he's a great sprinter as well, and we saw him take his second stage um, on stage 12. Talking about sprinters, non-sprinters who become sprinters, on stage 13, we saw an unexpected victory for a lead-out man, Florian Seneschal, who was nominally, notionally supposed to be leading out Fabio Jakobsen that day. There was a bit of a miscommunication, but Seneschal was the fastest rider. Another win for DSM the next day, a resurgent DSM, Roman Bardet, their French leader, climber, who'd crashed earlier in the race. He uh, scored a great solo victory at 
Pico Viercas. We were now on to our second day in the mountains west of Madrid and the stage to El Barraco, home of Jose Maria El Chava Jimenez, the late Jose Maria El Chava Jimenez. And it was a, a relatively quiet and sedate day as far as the peloton was concerned. Rafael Maika got away early and proceeded to take the stage with one of the, the most impressive and certainly the longest solo breakaways of his career. And on the general classification, well, odd Christian Eiking was still in red and went into the second rest day in that position, just over two minutes ahead of Primoz Roglic. He was 54 seconds ahead of Guillaume Martin and one minute 36 seconds ahead of Primoz Roglic. There was no problems with the Dekunic Quickstep lead out the following day after the rest day, that is stage 16. Uh, the race resumed with Fabio Jakobsen taking his third stage win of this Vuelta. And then the roglification really began with the most dramatic day of La Vuelta up until that point. Certainly the stage to Lagos de Covadonga, a legendary finish in the history of the Vuelta. And it was a legendary stage with Primoz Roglic escaping with Egan Bernal. And they rode a bit of a two-up time trial with Primoz Roglic finally taking both the stage win and finally the red jersey. We went to a, a new climb on, for stage 18, much anticipated Alto de Gamoniteru, and the winner there was, remember him, Miguel Angel Lopez. Took a terrific win in the in the fog at the summit. A climb that maybe didn't live up to expectations. A lot of riders said it was a little bit easier than they had expected. I hope that helicopter flying overhead isn't interrupting things too much here. But Superman flew, didn't he? And he took the stage win to really rescue Movistar's Grand Tour season, although they were at that point looking to place two riders on the podium. And then Rich, on stage 19, Magnus Court completed a kind of perfect hat-trick of stage wins. People talked about Wout van Aert's perfect hat-trick in the Tour de France of a time trial, a mountain t stage win and a bunch sprint. Well, here, Magnus Court's perfect hat-trick consisted of an uphill finish, a small group and a much larger group uh, in Cordoba and he won again on stage 19 in Monforte de Lemos. A tangent but we don't see many uh, breakaways like that contesting uh, stages these days do we? It's something we've talked about, we see bunch sprints or we see uh, solo escapes, we don't see many groups coming to the finish like that so it was a, something a bit different, a very exciting stage and it's set up arguably the most exciting stage of the race, stage 20, the penultimate stage here in Galicia. Well, the winner was a huge surprise, Clément Champoussin, but the stage was was about so much more than, than just the winner, unfortunately for him, because his win, the first professional win of his career, was kind of overshadowed by a thrilling stage that was uh, set fire to by Team Enios Grenadiers, who in doing so really set things up very nicely for Bahrain Victorious, who managed to propel Jack Haig onto the podium into third place overall and we saw Miguel Angel Lopez climb off we'll be returning to the Lopez story later in the episode uh, giving a little update on that and having some interesting insight from our audio diarist Pavel Sivakov but as we sit here waiting for the riders to come in on the final time trial we've got Primoz Roglic in the red jersey leading Enric Mas by 2.38 Jack Haig at 4.48 and Adam Yates at 5.48 you are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rights that matter? Never again. 
Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. We must say a huge thank you as we come to the end of our Vuelta coverage to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. And we're very grateful to them for their support and their commitment to the cycling podcast this year and all of our spin-off shows as well. Asker Jukendrup is the head of sports nutrition at Team Jumbo Visma. We've been hearing from him a lot during this Vuelta. Here he is on the latest thinking in fueling for the top teams. Yeah, I think this this is happening already in uh, professional cycling. It's like teams come up with their own solutions to do it, but they all have plans for uh, fueling. And making a plan is easy. Uh, I mean, the science is actually really clear on what to do. But then the biggest issue sometimes is just the execution of it. And then it comes down to do the riders have access at the time that they need it? So you need to think about the, all of these little aspects well in advance. Like if we want them to take two gels that hour, where, gonna get, where are they going to get those two gels from? And what do they need to drink that with? Where are they going to get that drink from? Where in the past it was just, yeah, you go to the feed station, you hand out some bottles to riders and then put a few rice cakes in the bags and, uh, and they'll be done. And then they can eat whatever they want. Now it's, it's much more planned. And I think that will only continue to, uh, to develop in the future. Thanks once again to Super Sapiens, our title sponsor. And if you'd like to know more about Super Sapiens and continuous glucose monitoring, go to supersapiens.com. from Rome. And you're here with your husband? Yes. Vincenzo Cristallo. We are arriving uh, now in, uh, in Compostela after uh, 863 kilometers. We started, uh, we set off in Jean-Pierre de Port and uh, we have arrived just now in front uh, to the cathedral and uh, with the surprise of Vuelta. Uh, How does it feel to be here in front of the cathedral? No, it's an incredible um, feeling, uh, rich of uh, charity, rich of uh, spirituality and uh, I feel at home here. First of all, what are your names? Where have you come from? I'm Chiara, I'm from Sicily and I study in Pavia. Yeah, I'm Daniele, I'm from Italy. And I'm Marieva, I'm from Greece. Yeah, we start uh, on the 3 of August, the, the Camino Frances in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. And we arrive today after a month <laughs> of work. Well, <laughs> it started as an adventure, but as you walk, as you struggle, uh, it changes your soul and yeah. it's... It's become more spiritual. Yeah. For me, it started like an adventure, but then 
you have many time to, to think about stuff and about you and you have the opportunity to yeah to renovate and yeah i don't know they told us that when we start that it's it's a um, how it's called of life like a simulation of life and i was like okay we'll see but it's kind of it is and the people you meet just random people on the way and you talk and you'll never see them again but it's beautiful Now I know that I can do everything I want, that I can uh, survive to all the pain, uh, blisters, <laughs> struggles. And yeah, I will come back to my lab to study, to the university. And yeah, it will be... I am... Now I'm ready to... Yeah, me too. I will go back to normal life, studying, doing my master. But I feel more, I don't know, I'm open to new things and people and to do more things like this and challenge myself more. Yeah, Did you know there was a bike race arriving here today at La Vuelta España? No. no Actually, when we were in Burgos, we, when we arrived, they passed again. And today, it's, I don't know, it's a sign. Yeah. So that's what you were doing, Daniel. You were out talking to, to pilgrims earlier on. Well, I was rich and was intrigued by the symmetry, the parallels between the Camino de Santiago and the, well, the journey of a three-week tour. The Camino de Santiago, we should maybe explain for those who don't know, the way of St. James, the journey, the, the, the long walk usually, but although you can do it on bike, um, there are various ways to do it that people have undertaken for centuries to the shrine of the apostle of St. James the Great was supposedly, he's supposedly buried here in Santiago de Compostela. Well, the, the Camino is something that is quite familiar to me. I think it's quite familiar to a lot of people now. Well, I was reading about it earlier. I didn't realize that it's really been revived in the last 50 or so years. There was a period where not many people were making this journey at all. Um, in fact, it had almost been forgotten about having been established since the middle ages but now uh, well there are various different versions iterations of the um, Camino de Santiago the most famous one being the the, the what they refer to as the French the French route from the Pyrenees effectively Saint Jean de Pied de Port uh, just on the other side of the Pyrenees and pilgrims I spoke to today Rich mainly Italian that was a, a strange and, and curious I think just what well, was happenstance and they had all done the that most famous version of the Camino de Santiago but we were thinking weren't we earlier today about how you know riders grand tour riders think about or they talk about how particularly their first grand tour changes them it can be a bit of a spiritual journey for for them in in various different ways and there are there are some parallels between the two things aren't there there certainly are um and well we'll hear from a, a few riders at, at different stages of their career and um, how they felt about their their own pilgrimage, I suppose, which ended here, um, at the end of a Grand Tour. I'm always struck by you know a lot of crashes in this race, and that's been a theme of Grand Tours recently. And a lot of riders really really struggling and really suffering through um, just to finish. And 
sometimes you wonder you wonder why you know we're going to hear from Scott Thwaites he's been struggling with a, a broken rib which you can see is incredibly painful you, the question does occur why and I think well I think I, I know I, I know now because I, I saw his expression at the finish and, and the way that he greeted his soigneur and his body language as well and the way that he he felt on, on just finishing I don't think that sense of accomplishment ever leaves a rider no matter how experienced they are I think it's still an achievement to, to finish a Grand Tour but also more importantly it's a terrible thing to not finish a Grand Tour and the the sense of, of uh, defeat the sense of failure I suppose that comes when you you quit a Grand Tour or any race for that matter can be enough of an incentive to not do so Rich, today there was a bit of an issue with the, the pilgrims in that usually people who complete the Camino de Santiago are entitled to receive this chapter, this certificate, this Compostela, and they get it from an office here in or in um, Santiago de Compostela, and it was closed today because of the Vuelta a España. But I was wondering whether any of the Vuelta riders might be eligible because you, you have to walk at least 100 kilometres. or you Michael Storer. Well, you have to walk at least 100 kilometres or... <laughs> Um, cycle 200 kilometers and your your motivation has to be in some way religious uh, but i think i don't know how they prove that they've been on the actual um the the, the sort of marked um designated Strava, Daniel. well yeah camino but rich for some riders here at the vuelta this really was today santiago de compostela the end of the road i'm thinking about fabio Aru, and um, he's going to retire today We've been speaking to him, I've been speaking to him a fair bit over the last three weeks. Um, it was a surprise when he announced that he was going to retire. And, you know, he's, he's looked like a man who's been enjoying himself, enjoying a sort of a, a second life almost as, well, as a different kind of rider here at the Vuelta. He's been in a lot of breaks. He told me yesterday that getting in breaks was something that scared him, that he, he had never really contemplated getting in breaks before. And only over the last week, since he's fallen out of the general classification, has he allowed himself to get into breaks and, find, and found out that he really enjoyed it and, and maybe he's thinking that he should have ridden a bit more like that before. But Rich, yesterday already um, he was talking about what emotions he was going to feel today when he got to Santiago de Compostela, what emotions he's, he's felt over the last three weeks. We're going to hear from him first of all about his, his particular Camino and also another rider who's completed, well, who's at the other end of his pro road career. Anton Paltzer, Tony Paltzer, who this time last year was a ski mountaineer, rode his first bike race on, well, in April, I think at the end of April. Andrich has just completed his first Grand Tour. He finished the Vuelta a España today and he spoke to me after that. Yeah, it was hard today. I felt, you know, a bit strange in the last 25, 30k, but uh, maybe I, I, I will realize... Uh, in the next days, but uh, I, I enjoy. Maybe I need more time, some months, uh, to keep, you know, a lot of thinking about the last years. I saw everything in my career, the victories and, uh, and then uh, other bad moments. But with, uh, with my family, my parents and uh, my, my girlfriend, they with me in Santiago. It's strange because I, I bought my first jersey in Lourdes, in France. And I finished my career in Santiago, and that's uh, that's good. Eh? 
How does it feel? I mean, here is a famous place to finish a long journey, the Camino de Santiago. This is the end of your long journey. Um, how does it feel? Oh, it's true. Very, really, really hot uh, three weeks. Uh, and yeah, now it's over. It's, yeah, it's still history. And, but it feels pretty good. I was not sure if I can finish this Vuelta after the first week. I suffered so much and yeah, now I'm here. I'm definitely proud of myself. Yeah, it was, it was a really fantastic time here. I guess people warned you, Tony, uh, that you, know, you would encounter things that you had not encountered before and that it was going to be harder than you could imagine. Um, but in what ways was it harder than you could have imagined? Uh, well, there were a lot of things were pretty, pretty hot for sure. The temperature in the first week. It's different to the winter <laughs> to, to compete with uh, more than 40 degrees. Uh, it was definitely a big challenge for me, but also, yeah, I think I learned a lot in, in these situations to cool down myself. And yeah, afterwards, day by day, it's getting better and better. And yeah, especially the last week, I felt pretty good for, for my shape, for sure, not like the top guys, but uh, I felt good. I had a lot of fun. and. Yeah, I think I really learned a lot. I had a lot of defects on my bike, so I also ride a lot of time in the convoy. <laughs> it was also a good learning and yeah, no, but it's, it's a pretty cool time. Again, when people do the Camino, they say they meet people, you know, unusual people, and they have great conversations and that changes them. Who have you met maybe in the peloton? One person that you've met who surprised you and you've really enjoyed talking with over the last few weeks and also a place you've seen that you've really enjoyed seeing I have a lot of good talks with Wout Pools. I'm a really big fan of him I like his character he's a really really smart guy he talked to me during uh, yeah in the peloton it was really nice and he asked me how I feel and I think every day we had a had a small talk uh, I'm a really big fan of him because he's so famous and so uh, so a good cyclist and he's still a yeah, great person and for sure the whole world, uh, we saw so many great places and it's a pity that we yeah, compete here and it was always stressful and so we didn't see so much but yeah, it was a really, really cool and, and nice time here. We should say that um, over the course of this episode we're going to be telling you what's happening on the stage of course and, and visiting uh, through our Pilgrims theme some of the, the main characters, the main stories of this world, including of course the, the drama yesterday surrounding Miguel Angel Lopez and Movistar. Um, but let's hear from another couple of, of Pilgrims here in Santiago de Compostela, two riders who uh, finished uh, the, their Vuelta a Españas today like everybody else. Florian Vermeersch of Lotus Sudal, young rider doing his first Grand Tour history student. Um, you spoke to him earlier in the Vuelta, Daniel. And then we'll hear from Scott Thwaites, who was the subject of a kilometre zero, has you know, clawed his way back to this level, having had a, a terrible crash a few years ago. And it's been a real struggle for him to finish. Um, so let's hear first from Vermeersch, and then from Scott Thwaites. A place of pilgrimage here, I guess. Uh, riding a Grand Tour is a bit of a, a pilgrimage for you guys. You finish your first one. How, how does it feel? What have you... What have you sort of taken from the last three weeks? Well, first of all, I feel really um, excited and, and proud, actually, that I finished my gra first Grand Tour. It's like you said, it's really symbolic because uh, Grand Tour is also a, a bit like a pilgrimage. And I said it the other day in the bus. In this Grand Tour, I, feel, I felt like I got to know myself a little better. Might, might, might sound sweet, but 
Yeah, it's really symbolic to finish here, uh, and I'm really, really happy that it's over, actually. What did you learn about yourself? Was it to do with the, the suffering that you need to go through to finish a Grand Tour? Yeah, after a few days, you're getting like a sort of fatigue, and it never gets worse, but it also never gets better, also with a rest day. And I learned that on bad days, you really have to push through the limit and uh, don't give up. That's actually the, the key, I think. If you don't give up, you can finish a Grand Tour. And sometimes it's mentally hard, but yeah, when you when you were able to finish it, like now, you feel really proud. What was your toughest moment? Uh, well, it was actually uh, the last stage, Magnus Kort Nielsen won. It was a really hard uphill start and I didn't feel bad actually, but we got dropped in the Gruppetto of like two, 25 or 30 guys and physically it was not my hardest day, but mentally it was just counting the kilometers because we were in the Gruppetto for like 150k and that's really long and especially in the third week you, you feel tired, you're a bit grumpy sometimes. <laughs> That's, uh, that, was, that was a hard moment for me, it was a hard stage, but I was really happy to finish it off and the day after I, feel much, I felt much better, so that's, like, that's what I said, you have, to get, you have to keep pushing and then everything is fine. And you've put out a good time trial there as well, looks like you've, you've made a real commitment to that time trial. Yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to push myself one last time here to finish it off well, but actually it was... I'm a, I'm a little disappointed because in the first 100 meter I lost my Garmin and I my uh, might be done. So I had to I had to do the time training really on on the on a feeling, you know, just try not to push it too hard. But I didn't have any reference at all. So it's like a pilgrim doing the the pilgrimage <laughs> and losing their map just yeah. on the outskirts of the city. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, but. Luckily, I could. I was able to catch some riders, so that was always a goal. Look to the next car and see where they at, and push through. And my sport director was always in my ear, like, "Here's an uphill section, and then it's a downhill." So that way, I had a little bit of a reference, but it was really, it was really tough. Scott, you've you've made it. I, I think I can see a smile on your face there, but discomfort as well because I can see you feeling your chest. How's the rib now? Uh, yeah, it's still still a bit painful. I sort of had. A couple of days where it got really bad uh, shortly after the crash and then yeah I was really suffering then almost first guy to be dropped in the peloton every day and yeah it wasn't very nice but yeah I'm happy now I battled on and you know I'm pretty, pretty near the back of the field this year but um, it's still always nice to finish a, a grand tour as a sense of pride no matter where you finish so I'm happy and especially after sort of four years since I last was doing this sort of thing and not all the, the big injuries and everything and different changes of teams and levels and things it's nice to yeah we're talking to you at the end of a, a grand tour with a good team again so. i can see there's a smile on your face and i mean i guess um we're in a, a place of pilgrimage here people come on a, a big journey here and it, they feel sometimes that it changes them is riding a grand tour similar to that you've done a few now but with everyone there's a is there a sense of a, a, a journey and a, a sense at the end of, of some kind of, I don't know, change or discovery or something? I, I think there certainly is, for sure, the first one you do, but then uh, each one's a different challenge and, yeah, different sort of ambitions and targets and everything. So, yeah, I think, like I said before, there's, 
a sense of pride in finishing a Grand Tour because it's only really you sort of sometimes forget that you're the the real pinnacle of the sport really and there's a lot of people that would like to be here in your shoes and doing doing what you're doing so it's it's special to remember that that you've uh, you're getting a big opportunity that a lot of people can only dream about so it's always nice to make the most of it and get to the end and uh, soak in the atmosphere and yeah, this this town is obviously a very special place and the crowds have been really good so it's uh, yeah it's been a, a nice end to, to the welter and I think uh, a well earned rest for a few days now so that was uh, Florian Vermeersch and Scott Thwaites and oh, it's starting to rain Daniel um, we're going to hear now our final pilgrim before we move on to the other stories Joe Dombrowski um, always a Always got a story, Joe, and uh, I believe there might be some very good news uh, coming Joe's way tomorrow. He is expecting to sign a contract with a team tomorrow, which is great news because he's out contract at the end of the year. Let's hear from Joe Dombrowski. Joe, it's a pilgrimage city. Does riding a Grand Tour feel like a pilgrimage? Uh, yeah, a bit. I mean, when I think back to like the first week, it seems like it was ages ago. Like It goes by quite quick, but at the same time, it's also feeling really long. Do you, you've done a few now, but do you learn something about yourself every Grand Tour you do? Yeah, I think uh, I always am surprised with how much it can change over the course of the race, even like your own condition and how you're feeling in the bunch and, uh, you know, your ability to deliver results or not from week one to week three. Did you have any conversations with people you didn't know this year? Did you get to know anyone that you didn't know previously? I mostly get to know people that I get really annoyed with over three weeks, but I won't mention any names. Oh, please. <laughs> no. Daniel, one of our pilgrims, of course, is Fabio Jakobsen, three-time stage winner here, and he finishes up in the green jersey. I was quite struck. You were speaking to him just now, uh, just after he finished his time trial, and we'll hear from him in a moment, but I was quite struck by the way that he was holding himself. I spoke to him in Burgos after stage one and interviewing him, he kept coughing. He was in quite a lot of discomfort. Um, you can see the scars on his face and on his throat from his accident. And those were kind of the things I suppose I was focused on. They were very symbolic of where he's come from. Looking at him now, he's holding himself in a very confident, a very assured way. We're used to seeing riders over the course of a Grand Tour, seeing their bodies break down, seeing them diminished. He looks a more confident, more ebullient, more more self-assured person, as well as obviously um, the winner of the green jersey and, and having proven that he's back uh, at, at the very top level of sprinting. The big thing for me, and I've mentioned it before, is how quickly people forgot how good Jakobsen was before the accident. And the accident itself almost overshadowed what he'd achieved in the first three or four years of his career and I think he was on course to become the dominant sprinter in the world and I'm, I am slightly surprised that he's, he's picked up that thread as quickly and I'm not going to say easily because I'm sure well it has been torture for him at times but he himself you can tell is quite keen to move on from well talking about the accident uh, the crash and it reminds me a little bit because we're at the vuelta of the uh, one of the worst one of the worst crashes we've ever seen in professional cycling involving mario cipollini in the 1993 vuelta España in salamanca when again there well not wearing a helmet he sort of landed on his head and similarly shocking to jacobson's in poland 
he took well about a year to come back to sprinting at his previous level and in fact got better afterwards well Jakobsen as I say is on that trajectory to become an even better sprinter and at the age he's at to become possibly the best sprinter in the world the other re- revelation for me of this what Spain is but Van Lerberger I didn't realize the extent to which he has been he's been prepared and groomed um, to become De Koenig Quicksteps next number one lead out man uh, when Michal Morkov finally well I, I don't know how many more years he's going to carry on but he's a very experienced rider and he can't have many too many years left yeah I mean it helps I think the green the green outfit is sort of incredible halt look about um, Jakobsen but he's very muscular very uh, a very impressive physical specimen isn't he and like I say he comes out of this well to looking almost in a way fresher because he's got that confidence back I think anyway you spoke to him after he'd finished his time trial here's what he had to say I think it's uh, quite symbolic to start uh, in Burgos in front of the cathedral and uh, make it all the way to Santiago uh, like a like a pilgrim and uh, felt a bit like that I guess Uh, suffered a lot along the way especially in the heat and on the climbs but to be here with three victories and the green jersey and uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's the best feeling in the world and I need to thank my team, my teammates, they stayed with me and they are the reason that I'm here now. You know, everybody's talking about a comeback and of course I, I'm happy that I am back but then as an athlete you want to get back to your, to your best level and uh, I think in, in, in the sport of cycling you need a Grand Tour in the legs and that's where you can show if, if you're a real sprinter that can do the mountains, but you can also win in the, in the, in the sprints. And uh, that's why I wanted to come here and also towards the next years. And this is really good for the confidence. Fabio, just athletically, where's the, the area where you think you can make big gains before your next Grand Tour? Next, next year you might do the Giro, you might do the Tour. What's the, the area where you think I can make significant improvements before then? Uh, I would say the, the overall level, I think my sprint is, is, is on a good level again, but the, the rest can still improve. I would say I could use a couple of watts on threshold and, and maybe so, some ability to recover during the, the days, but uh, that's something you need to build and uh, yeah, I've only been racing for 3-4 months. So for sure, with the next winter and the, the next uh, spring season, I'll, I'll get that body again and, and, and get those extra watts on the threshold. And, and then I hope to, to be aiming again for a Giro or two next year. What are you most looking forward to about the winter? Oh, two weeks holiday, but for sure uh, a normal November for a cyclist. Not one uh, I had last year when it was back and forth between hospital. So uh, I'm going to enjoy spending time with the family and, uh, and of course, uh, have a couple of drinks, some good food and, uh, and then start training again, you know, 1st of November like, uh, like any pro athlete and I'm sure I'm going to enjoy the Dutch uh, cold weather. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to Science in Sport, our long-term sponsor. They started with us at the Giro in 2016 and have been with us through every Grand Tour since. I'm not sure how many that is, but it's, uh, well, five years times three, 15. Thanks very much indeed to them. If you would like 
25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout enter the code SISCP25. Six years, isn't it? Not five, so it's 18 grand tours. Apologies for that. Thank you very much to Science and Sport. Now, Daniel, um, as we speak here, we're entering the closing stage of the time trial. Magnus Court Nielsen already with three stage wins uh, is in the hot seat. I mean, talk about having good legs. He's won in every, pretty much all, almost every scenario here, time trial, and he's once again uh, proven what you can do when you've got good legs and you're a versatile rider like him. Cool. I said earlier it had been a perfect hat-trick of stage wins already. What do you call in, in Italian? Everything's four, so four wins would be a poker, a poker. What do you call it in English? Quadruple. Or is it Spanish, for that matter? I don't know. Um, but whatever it is, he's at the moment on for it. But we do expect, well, some of the later starters to, to, to challenge that time or even beat it but another exceptional performance from him. The wind is supposedly going to change in Magnus Court's favour and, well, in in a way that won't please Primoz Roglic because I think it's going to get up a little bit and it will be a headwind on some key parts of the course. So I've heard. Anyway, that's the intel flying around at the moment. That's Magnus Court's Valter. He's had a a fair wind this Vuelta, hasn't he? Now, Daniel, another rider who has contributed a lot to this Vuelta but is actually... You could say going home empty-handed, Egan Bernal. Um, he, we didn't really know, I don't think, the extent of the uncertainty around his participation even in this Vuelta. We're going to hear from him and his coach, Zabi Artecha, in this part of the podcast. But, um, you know, does he finish this Vuelta with his reputation enhanced? I'm not sure it's enhanced. I mean, from a, a, a panache point of view or perceived panache, I think, that is the case. But now's always been an exciting rider. He's always been a gutsy rider. He's always been also a very engaging personality, eloquent, intelligent, quite charming, charismatic, and he's been all of those things at the Vuelta España. In terms of ability, Rich, uh, where he's been at the past, where he's at now, well, we'll, we'll hear a, a bit more about that, where this Vuelta ranks in terms of well, other Grand Tours, Grand Tours that Bernal's done, Grand Tours that we've seen this year. We'll hear a bit about that in a minute. I think the the prevailing consensus at the moment is that Pogacar and Roglic are a rung ahead of Egan Bernal. But until we see them all going head-to-head in a major tour, all in good form, none of them crashing, we won't really know. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what... Ineos Grenadiers do and what they plan with Bernal going forward because I mentioned a few weeks ago in the podcast they are minded to start negotiating, renegotiating his contract, put him on another long-term contract pretty soon I think and they see him as their future. Well let's hear from him shall we, some surprising bits and pieces in the two interviews we're about to hear first Egan Bernal and then his coach Zabi Arteta. Mainly about the issue of his Covid and how that hampered him in the run-up to the Vuelta España and how close he came to not riding this Vuelta España because of his difficulty recovering. 
I was thinking that uh, with the COVID, would not be easy to, to be uh, in La Vuelta España. I, I don't know if it has, if it affects in long terms. I mean, for the next uh, years. Hopefully not, because half peloton have had COVID. So uh, hopefully not. Just a couple of weeks before coming here, I, I, I was in a dinner with, a, with, a, with my coach, uh, and we were discussing if it uh, should be a good idea to come here or not, because I mean, I am like uh, maybe two or more of two kilos more than my weight. So I, I mean, it's not my best uh, shape. And for sure it was because the COVID. I was after the COVID, I was training like uh, 40 minutes and I'm completely tired. Yeah, something has affect for sure. The, the only thing we know and uh, we can prove is that the uh, because the COVID here stopped longer than we would like to after the after the Geo. We had planned to, to stop uh, one week of the bike and uh, finally he had to stop three weeks and uh, he lost all the form. So uh, then it's been really difficult uh, to build up again for the Vuelta and uh, to come to the Vuelta 100% like he should come. And also when he started training in the beginning, also following the medical group recommendations, he had to start really slow. Also because he didn't feel great when he started training. In what ways, I mean, do you, do you no. remember? In the way that uh, he was affected with the post-COVID symptoms, no? It wasn't like when you start training in, uh, in November or in December. Okay, you are not feeling great, but uh, it's because you are out of shape, no? In this case, uh, he was out of, out of shape, but, uh, but also struggling a little bit with the post-COVID symptoms. He didn't come and shape to the Vuelta. We were thinking or guessing that he would take the form slowly during the race. But uh, yeah, when you come to such a, a big race with a great level, so uh, it's, uh, it's difficult to do. Don't lose time and arrive to the, to the final week in his best condition. No? We were believing that uh, he has a really good recovery and, uh, and try to, to improve day after day. And I think he, he's been doing, no? I think uh, his uh, shape in the last week, it's, uh, it's uh, been be best than uh, the, the previous weeks. Personally, I, I'm, I'm really happy because uh, probably the easiest thing for him, it would be just give up when uh, he wasn't feeling great. Also with the heat and uh, it, it, it's been really, really hard, Volta España this year. But uh, he, he's been fighting, he's been fighting every day, trying to, to minimize the losses. When he's feeling a, a bit better, he has tried to do something crazy, but it's the, it's the cycling he loves. No? Uh, so uh, personally, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with, with, the, with the way he has ridden this Vuelta. Have you done tests, Xavi, to confirm that, you know, I heard in Gaviria's case, for example, there was a, a reduction in his lung capacity for a short period of time after COVID. Um, do you guys know for sure that there aren't any long-term effects now? No, we don't think so because uh, he's been coming back slowly, but I think to the normal condition. No? We've seen in other riders different improve improvement or something that uh, it wasn't going right. No, like uh, heart rate uh, wasn't uh, increasing, uh, like uh, the body was with uh, limitations. No, so with another riders, uh, we have done a different uh, different test to see if the heart, the, the lungs, uh, everything is in the normal conditions. But with Egan, I think uh, it's, it's not nothing to be concerned for the future because when you see uh, the, the last two days, how has been his performance, even uh, not being uh, probably at uh, his best, I think the numbers and, the, and, the, and the, the pace in the last climbs has been really, really high. So I think uh, he's coming back to the normal condition. Well, Daniel, some interesting stuff there. I mean, COVID is the, the kind of shadow over the, the world at the moment. And as Bernal himself pointed out, an awful lot of riders have had COVID to 
varying degrees. Um, I was also surprised to hear that he's two kilos overweight as well, or u- over his usual race weight. Oh, wow. Okay. Just got an update on the, the times there. Um, Roglic, 19 seconds quicker than Magnus Court. He's roglified Magnus Court's time at the intermediate, hasn't he? Well, let's see what happens with that. But back to back to COVID, it, it's, it feels like it's receded, but for a lot of riders who've had it, it's still a, a kind of ever-present thing. And one of those riders is Jens Kukler, the EF rider who, who had a bad case of COVID last year. He spoke about that at length on Mitch Docker's podcast, Life in the Peloton, last year, which interests us. But, you know, you caught up with him here, Daniel, um, 18 months or so on, and, and, you know, the effects lingered for a long time. Yeah, just to give a little bit of context on the Bernal situation, really, and, and as I said, the struggles that Egan Bernal went through recovering. Also, I think, you know, maybe more importantly, the psychological doubts. Um, is it going to affect my body in the long term? possibly permanently is my heart my lungs and I think Egan Bernal bat- battled with all of that well here's Jens Kukler I know you were one of the riders that had Covid um, earlier this year and Egan Bernal's come here and it seems as though he's finally recovering how difficult it was to, to overcome that for you yeah from what I've experienced I think it's different for, for everybody some are lucky and uh, I think they, they hardly even feel it uh, and they, they get back pretty easy Others are different, and mine was definitely different. I think I was really sick for 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 ten days. I had fever for ten days. I can say that it almost took two months before I started feeling normal again on the bike. I was lucky that uh, that it was in the in the first lockdown, so there weren't any races for for a long period. So I didn't have to stress myself to come back. Uh, I had all the time in the world to to take it uh, as easy as possible, and uh, and don't put too much stress on the body. But yeah, definitely for me, it was a long way to come back from the from the illness. What kind of things did you see? Did you see, I don't know, higher heart rate, bad recovery for those couple of months, or just a general feeling of tiredness? What was it? Just uh, tired, really, really tired. I remember, like, it, after after 20 days, was the first time back on the bike, just a really easy ride, and it felt like, yeah, the worst shape I've ever been in. Just in general, tired. Like, I did the first two weeks that I was just. I can't even call it training, which is moving the body a little bit. And then my third week, I wanted to start training again. And after three days, I had to stop, um, take another five days off. And then after that, slowly, it came back to normal. I think one or two riders have, or teams have done tests to make sure there's no permanent damage to lungs. Did you do any of that? Yeah, yep, I did. As soon as I I found out that, I, that, it, that it was... Um, uh, COVID. Uh, I did the heart test and the lung test. I actually think that the lung test I have to do it again every year now. Normally, the heart test we do it every every other year. The lung test, I think, yeah, from the team anyway. I had to do it again this year, uh, and I think I'll have to do it every year now. Well, for the moment, it all looks good again. I think my body is is the same as it was before. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't easy. Yet. Well, Daniel, upset might be on the cards because there is a, a, a time check in the first split. Uh, Adam Yates, 26 seconds up on Jack Haig. Um, so Jack Haig's podium place may be under threat, which would be quite an upset, I think. Let's see what pans out over the second half of the course. Movistar, Daniel, they've had a, a great weekend. Um, Annemiek van Vluten wrapped up the Ceratizic Challenge today. Um, and actually, the women's team has been uh, performing really well for Movistar all year. But on the men's side, it's uh, a very mixed picture, isn't it? Because on the one hand, uh, they have Enric Maas heading to second overall at the Vuelta, a very strong, very solid 
performance from him, one which represents progress. I spoke to Pachi Vila yesterday, um, ahead of yesterday's stage, before the dramatic um, scenes where Miguel Angel Lopez got off his bike and uh, refused to carry on, having been caught behind in a split um, and seeing his third place overall disappearing up the road. He was caught behind in a group with Egan Bernal and others and apparently was quite angry with Bernal. Um, let's hear what our audio diarist Pavel Sivakov told us about that. That's a big drama actually going on between... Uh, yeah, not between, yeah, with, uh, with Miguel Angel Lopez. And uh, yeah, he was he was quite angry at Egan actually. For letting the wheel go, basically. Um, I mean, you know... Egan wouldn't have chased, of course, um, when uh, Adam went up the front. I mean, the guy who's got everything to lose was Lopez. I'm not blaming him in anything, but, um, you know, it was, yeah, it was not Egan's fault at all there uh, that he, he let the gap go. You know, for him, for him was perfect. That's what basically what we worked for all day with the, with the boys. Yeah, and with five, I think we, we managed to do uh, to do an amazing job, really. That was quite an interesting insight from Sivakov. We hadn't heard that. I mean, Bernal was very diplomatic at the finish, very um, very kind of uh, warm towards uh, Miguel Angel Lopez. But obviously, Lopez felt that Bernal had either let the gap go in the first place or he was angry at him for not chasing. Another little tidbit is that Bernal says that at no point did he see Lopez getting any instructions not to chase? He may well have been getting instructions through the radio, but he wasn't aware of him being instru- getting instructions from the team car. So lots of mystery still surrounding the circumstance of his withdrawal, not least of which is the lack of any images, any pictures. Uh, conspiracy theorists are wondering whether there was a, a call made by Movistar to not show what was happening, but it is very curious that we don't have any pictures of what actually happened. Well, first of all, Rich, we should say that, that most are, uh, well, they are fourth pilgrims because, you know, a pilgrim is a person travelling to a holy place or as a penance to discharge some vow, religious obligation. Well, we're in a holy place and the, the Vuelta is kind of it's Movistar's holy place as well. Unfortunately, the etymology of, Pele- um, of pilgrim also comes from... Well, it suggests the person comes from a foreign land, not the case for Movistar. However, the Vuelta is their race of you know, religious devotion. Last night, well, there were various things happening, weren't there? There was Superman's father-in-law giving an, an interview to a Colombian newspaper that was picked up widely, it was suggesting that, well, he had been told to, to wait, to stop, wait for teammates behind, uh, hence his, his anger. And then there have been further developments today, Rich. Well, one of our colleagues in the mix zone here, Juan Carlos Bejerano from Wind Sports, he was reporting last night on the whole incident, obviously a big story in Colombia. And the programme was interrupted for reasons and in a manner that we'll hear about now. I asked Juan Carlos to tell me the whole story today. What do you make of this? Well, I got a call from Movistar. They say that Superman is willing to, to speak to me to explain what happened. And I was in the middle of the program. We didn't have time to set up things. It would have been nice to, to be on a video. And I just put the speaker on, on my phone and put it next to the microphone. And, and I asked basically the same question five times in different ways. I just wanted to know why did he do it? At the beginning, he was you know, explaining you know, he lost time and all this thing, and, uh, until he finally said, you know, I made a mistake. 
And, and I think you have heard the recording. That recording is he talking to me, uh, where he apologizes to his mates, to the La Vuelta, to the fans. And he says he, he, he has made a mistake, he should have finished, basically. Are you, do you fully understand what happened tactically and what, what conversations occurred between him and Untue and, and Pachi Villa? Because there's still a bit of a grey area as far as I can see. I think we will never know, or maybe until he retires, what exactly happened. Because we got uh, his father-in-law and his wife uh, talking to our colleagues in Colombia saying that he was giving the order not to try to connect with Roglic and Mass because Bernal then could attack and then Mass would, would lose the second place. He hasn't confirmed that, has he? No, he, 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 he didn't, he didn't. And I, I don't think he will, uh, maybe one day when he retires. My point of view is he lost it. I mean, he could have gone with them, with Roglic, uh, with Mass, but he stayed behind. So he made a mistake, I don't think that Movistar would have been interested in telling him to stay behind. I think he just didn't have, this is what he said to me, every time uh, Yates and Bernal attack, he was the one who had to go and control and neutralize the attack. So obviously this, he got tired. So, you know, he couldn't blame anyone. And uh, what could they do? They, they only fight people. Uh, Mas couldn't stay behind to help him. Irbiti helping for a while. They couldn't do much. My point is, I think he lost it yesterday because he must have been giving orders throughout the whole Vuelta that he didn't agree with. I think, I feel that he was stronger than Enric Mas, but he didn't have the freedom to attack. He didn't have the freedom to, you know, to go his own way. He always had to ask for permission and that maybe Movistar was protecting Mas over him. That's my point of view. He didn't say that, but I, I think that's what happened. And there is a story, an history of Movistar with Latin American riders, with Nairo Quintana, with Carapaz, where they are the leaders, but they are the second leaders. You know, there's always a Spaniard above them. Uh, it's a Spanish team for a Spanish market, although they are, they, they are probably bigger in South America. And they want to have a, a Spanish start, which they haven't found. And Juan Carlos, we won't go into it now, but I've even noticed, for example, this year, Superman Lopez gets sent to the mix zone most days when Eric Mas is protected and, you know, he's told he doesn't have to do media. But quickly, briefly, I want to ask you, what's Superman's future with Movistar? I, he told me they, he's going to stay. He's going to stay with them for two years. I think the way they reacted yesterday, trying to get him to explain the situation, uh, means that there is a future with them. Otherwise, they would just send out a statement saying, you know, the contract is finished. He didn't comply with the contract because they are a company at the end of the day. And you, can, you could argue he didn't comply with the contract yesterday. So I think, I think he has a future with that, but he has let them down. He has let down uh, the Latin Americans. But he's a champion. We love him. We'll forgive him. Especially when people make mistakes, we love that when they say, you know, I made a mistake. He has next year to come back stronger. Is he still Superman or has he become, I don't know, what would, normal man? <laughs> no, let's say he's a normal man right now because uh, the kryptonite was his temper yesterday, uh, but he can recover like Superman did.
So what do you make of that, Rich? Have you ever had to interview a mobile phone live on television? Um, it it looked never quite, be a live television. It, it, Juan Carlos showed me the pictures, and it looked quite curious, I must say, of him just sort of standing um, yeah, with, his, with his iPhone, holding it up alongside the microphone. But a moment of high drama, which didn't really, as Juan Carlos said, resolve the issue of exactly what had happened in those key moments yesterday. And to be honest, when Eusebio Unzue came into the mix zone today we were not sure that we were going to get too many answers because Eusebio is a, he's a very he's a very sort of slick talker slick mover slick negotiator and he sort of specializes in the art of saying a lot without revealing very much at all and we thought that would be the case today however he sort of surprised us this is what Eusebio said not only about the incident yesterday but also about Superman's future with Movistar la, la situación o sea el principio el kilómetro cero o el punto cero this problem all started with the race situation yesterday, where three riders who were behind him on GC went away with three riders who were ahead of him. He had to react immediately. It was a group of 10 or 12 riders. He hesitated a little bit, then he tried to get across, but for whatever reason, he couldn't quite close the gap. He kept trying until the top of the climb, but you saw how the gap was growing. Two seconds, four, eight, ten, twelve, twenty until we asked him to wait a moment because his teammate Rojas was coming back. He was a minute and a half or thereabouts away. But Miguel struggled to accept that out of frustration and he couldn't snap out of it. Seeing all the work of the previous three weeks when he'd been exemplary, winning a big mountain stage in fantastic style, go to waste. Then it went the way it went, 24 hours from the end of the welter. He's just renewed his contract for two more years, but I can guarantee you that we're not going to force anyone to stay here. Now we'll let the dust settle and take whatever decisions we feel are necessary in the next two or three days. Well, it sounds as though um, things might move quite quickly. As I said last night, if the relationship was broke down to the extent that we heard it, it did on the road, it could be difficult to, to patch that back up. I mean, there were various reports of him arguing with Pachi Vila and Eusebio Unzui, and they're probably the two people that... You, you don't really want to have a big fight with uh, because they're two very important people in that team. Yeah, and in, in the final analysis, Rich, well, obviously, it put a, a big dampener on Movistar's Vuelta España. Vuelta España, which even had Superman finish fifth or sixth, would have been a triumph for the team, really. They got their stage win and they're going to get their second place overall with Enrique Maasen. You know, it's a big vindication of, of the direction the team has sought to go in over the past couple of years, really backing Enrique Maas. Uh, they've anointed him as their leader for the next few years. I think the big question it raises is, well, it, it raises not just questions, but it, it reignites this debate there is about how how much they care for their South American riders, how they how much they look after their South American riders. The company, Movistar and Telefonica, have big interest in South America, but it always seems as though they are second best. And you know, there's even some suggestion that Superman um, thought that he was he was stronger than Mass in this Vuelta España. I, I really don't know how this one's gonna go. Before we spoke to Eusebio today, I thought that they would well, as he said there, let the dust settle and let the issue sort of diffuse itself and that Superman would still be at Movistar next year. Now, I'm really not sure. But what, what, what have you made of mass over the, over the last 
three weeks. I mean, the word is solid, isn't it? He has been, uh, uh, you know, we talked about Egan Bernal really lighting the race up and taking risks. Mass hasn't taken so many risks. He's ridden in a, a, a conservative way, but in a very strong way. You know, I mean, nobody could beat Primoz Roglic here. He's the best of the rest, and I think that's on merit. I mean, he's 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 taken a step forward this year. I think. I mean. All of us who watched the famous Netflix documentary series were struck, I think, by how, how serious, how earnest he was and how hard on himself he was as well. And you almost felt like, you know, putting an arm around him and telling him it'll be OK. Um, and I think that's reflected in his riding style. You know, he's not a risk taker. He's not somebody like Bernal who appeared to be willing to, to risk everything. He's not like that, but he's he's moving on, he's progressing. He needs to ride a Grand Tour like this without uh, Primoz Roglic in it. A final word, I think, on Superman yesterday, Rich. We were talking about the sort of the blurring of lines sometimes, the maybe dangerous blurring of lines on this sort of mental health spectrum. Um, you know, Superman Lopez yesterday had what some people have referred to as a ten- temper t- tantrum. Others have sympathetically spoken about more in terms of psychological crisis difficult moment you know something he needs help with and really you know the phrasing or the the lens through which you see an incident like that and behavior like that completely determines how you judge him his behavior and what you think movistar should do who's our next pilgrim daniel well it's jack haig the revelation of this Vuelta a España in many ways. Other people might argue that it was Michael Storer or Magnus Court. But Jack Haig was, well, his was a move, a transfer that really slipped under the radar last winter when he moved from Mitchelton Scott, was it called Mitchelton Scott last year, to Bahrain Victorious. We weren't quite sure what role he would have in that team because they, they already had very good general classification option with Mikel Lander and then we saw Damiano Caruso emerge at the Giro d'Italia but then at the Tour de France Jack Haig went in really as the team leader didn't he and he'd been in exceptional form in the Dauphiné before the Tour and then his Tour dream was ruined in that awful crash at Pontivy in the first week and you know he came here rich well I spoke to him a lot over the I've spoken to him a lot over the last three weeks and Initially, at this Vuelta, and particularly after the first mountain state to Picon Blanco, he was slightly disappointed, slightly miffed that his recovery from that crash in the Tour de France had taken, was taking longer than he thought. And, and I felt that at that point he was quite pessimistic about his prospects in this Vuelta a España. And since then, well, it, he's grown every day. He's grown as the mountain stages have sort of filed by. And well, he's just defended his podium position here, having come under a bit of a, a bit of a challenge from Adam Yates. Early pressure, but in the end, uh, he's extended his lead, and he's very safe in third. Let's hear uh, the the journey, the progression of Jack Higgs, Jack Higgs Vuelta. Um, in a, a few clips from the interviews he's given us, and many interviews he's given us over the course of the race. No, I didn't get up to sit up. There was uh, quite a few teams with multiple riders in the breakaway, and it made sort of the decision making a little bit difficult there. Obviously, somewhere uh, DSM had a lot of riders there, and they were able to do multiple attacks. And it sort of just came down to the point of trying to pick the right person to follow and sometimes you need to gamble a little bit if you want to go for the stage win and you can't spend all your energy following every single move. In the breakaway we had Felix Groschnader and he was potentially riding himself into red and I think the guys like myself and Sepp and uh, Roman kind of expected him to ride a little bit more for time rather than the result. 
The hardest climb on the course today is the penultimate one, or the steepest anyway. It looks the perfect place for a team to take it on and be really aggressive there. You could be the team, couldn't you? No, absolutely. I think uh, we have the penultimate climb, like you said, and then there's also this middle section with a very short climb. It's uh, the smallest road we have all day. It's quite twisty, and I think uh, you can really put some people under pressure here, and it'll probably really depend on the breakaway composition as to who will take it up. Yeah, there was uh, quite a lot of wind here at the final sort of top 10Ks, and uh, it really played a really big role, and the majority of it was headwind. So I saw Lopez go and uh, tried to assess who had teammates and Roglic still had uh, Sepp and a couple of other guys there so I decided just to wait in the wheels and uh, sort of save those really big efforts for later on when there could potentially be more time gained. Those five or three seconds that he got were definitely probably pretty hard five or three seconds out there on his own in the wind so I'm happy with uh, how it finished up. Who knows, he sometimes pulls out some really good time trials and then sometimes pulls out some complete shockers. And uh, obviously I'm hoping that he pulls out a complete shocker, but uh, who knows. Slowly I've been progressing in the time trial. I think I still have a lot of uh, work to do. I've still not been to a wind tunnel or done any real optimization on skin suit or equipment. So it's something that I really want to prioritize this winter because we are seeing now that time trials are so important in stage races and grand tours. And I think I still have a lot of potential to grow there. I'm quite a tall, big person that would normally excel quite well in time trials if you look at the body type. So I think I have some area to improve there, but obviously nothing will change between now and tomorrow and I'll just do my best and with that, the result will come. So Daniel, where does Jack Haig go from here? Um, I mean, I think his performance here, given the crash and the, the broken collarbone at the Tour de France, um, surprised him, surprised his team, surprised a lot of people. It surprised also one of his neighbours in Andorra, a man on a rival team, Robert Hessing, who crashed and broke his collarbone on the same day at the Tour de France. Here's what Hessing had to say about Jack Haig's podium finish here at the Vuelta at the end of today's time trial broke uh, our collarbones at the same day in the in the tour so we were in touch a lot it was always like a competition in between who uh, recovered quickest in the end uh, i was quicker on the bike but he was in way better shape than me here in the, in the world i think for him already getting uh, well let's let's say he's, he's gonna get third and well he's third at the moment yeah i think for him already that was a great great result yeah let's see what, let's see what comes but first yeah let's be happy with what primos uh, showed here and uh yeah let's hope for uh, another really nice result for him today have you been surprised by his podium finish here which looks likely or, or is something you thought he was capable of yeah i think everybody i think everybody should be surprised about that i mean not that jack is not a good rider and he hasn't shown before but don't forget he broke his collarbone in the tour it's only six weeks up until the start of, of the vuelta that's really short shown an incredible form in the tour already but build up again uh, to here and then showed such a strong race um, and did such a good result and uh, so so i think uh, yeah it's worth saying that it's a big big compliment uh, to him yeah. you train a bit with him in andorra yeah we're in touch every now and then and uh, oh, quite quite a lot training schedules his trainer does completely different uh, schedules and, and mine so we didn't really match but we ran into each other a lot and, and rode for uh, for some time we're always in touch and yeah we know, we know each other quite well well it was Robert Hessink and as as we were hearing from Robert Hessink the music struck up some lovely pipes the bagpipe feel bagpipe. very at home here yeah, I Daniel gonna, I was going to say yeah, well we know about the the Celtic is this for Michael Storer is this for the King of the Mountains <laughs> we know about the Celtic influences in this part of the world in Galicia 
But going back to Jack Hagridge, well, he's been impressive in lots of ways at this World Tour Spain, hasn't he? Not least because I think that some of the things that riders who graduate to that position of team leader struggle with, Jack Hague already has in place. And when I say that, I mean communication, being a very good leader. Um, I spoke to Jan Tratnik after the time trial today, and, and he said that Hague really trusted his team here, with good reason, I suppose, because they were very strong, are very strong. But, you know, he, he's 27 years of age. He's had a long apprenticeship. Some might still feel that he should have broken out of his of that sort of golden cage that he was in at Mitchelton Scott a little bit earlier but now he's got a bit of a clear runway for the next two or three years and I spoke to him yesterday about his time trialing he's not done a lot of work specifically on his time trialing he's not been to a wind tunnel yet I don't believe he's not um, to refined his clothing bike that kind of thing so it's big margins for improvement there and I imagine that he he will go to the Tour de France next year as well as Bahrain Victorious is well very much now their leader well, here we go, Daniel. It's the big final presentation here on the podium. Oh, what a stunning setting for a podium uh, presentation. Well, it's our final pilgrim, and it's the winner of this Vuelta España. He came to the Vuelta Rich. Was it to pay a certain, uh, pay a kind of penance after the Tour de France, after his crash at the Tour de France, or seek redemption? You know, that's another reason people go on the Camino de Santiago. Well, not the first time uh, Roglic has come to the Vuelta in that sort of state of mind. I also want to remember he took that two-month period off before the Tour de France, off racing. I wonder if he'll do that again. Um, you know, that experiment didn't, didn't really work all that well. Just to clear up what happened today, Roglic won the time trial. He beat Magnus Court in the end by just 14 seconds. So I really, I mean, that shows what a strong performance it was by Magnus Court. He roglified uh, Henrik Maas on the climb up to the finish, catching him just before the line that wasn't that w wasn't great uh, I don't suppose for Mass's morale at that point but he held on second overall 4.42 down Jack Haig third at 7.40 so that's the podium and those three riders are going to appear in front of us in a moment and our our final pilgrim of the Vuelta is appropriately enough Primoz Roglic and it's time really to put this third consecutive Vuelta victory by Primoz Roglic into perspective isn't it Rich um well, he, he's emulated the feat achieved by Tony Rominger in the 1990s. And, you know, I was looking at their respective... Oh. Oh. Rog is now dressed in tra traditional garb. Um, he's got... Rich, I'm going to let you describe that. He's Well, he's got a stick, a walking stick, which is another of these items, that, part of the paraphernalia associated with the Camino de Santiago. He's holding up a, a furry, soft toy scallop at the moment um, another symbol is a shell scallop shell of the camino de santiago hey looks it's a very fetching outfit he's he's a good sport isn't he old rock well that's been one of the themes i will we'll get on to that um, in just a second but i was i was saying that in terms of palmares and and how it stacks up now with other well we have to start talking about primos roglic in the same bracket as some of the great stage races tony rominger won the vuelta three times he also won the giro he won a tour of lombardy a couple of times rogs won a monument of course Liege baston Liege. but i i mean we were talking about this earlier i think in terms of the impact and the intensity of the rog years the rog reign um i think he's surpassed people like rominger now and you can start to talk about him in the same bracket as people with much more diverse Palmares, someone like Vincenzo Nibli. I mean, I, I go back to this incredible record, which was actually broken at the Tour de France, of Primoz Roglic having led every 
stage race that he'd taken part in and that that run has sort of resumed now and you can look back to the 2018 Tirreno Adriatico and without mishaps Primoz Roglic would have won pretty much every single one of those races apart from the Tour de France in that year 2018 and of course he didn't win well he didn't win Paris-Nice earlier this year because he crashed out and then the Tour de France we all know what happened there and one of the themes of our Vuelta coverage I suppose has been this idea that Roglic has been a far more relaxed figure better at talking to the media confirming the stories told to us over several years now by people on his team who all um, find him great company and, and a funny guy and he's been showing that a little bit more he seemed very relaxed you know and we've been asking uh, a lot of people around him about that I spoke to Adi Engels the sports director yesterday and I asked him about that here's what he said is that just the, the real Roglic kind of emerging or is that the way he's always been or, or have you noticed a change in him as well he looks more relaxed I, I agree, but I think that's the real Primoz, and, and we have seen that, that Primoz many times. But I think you're right, it shows it a bit more, he seems, he seems to enjoy it also more. And I, I don't know why it is, I mean, that's, that's a question for him, obviously. Yeah, it's really nice to see him like that, because when, when, when the leader... I mean, we, we see him many times like that, but, but still, that, that, that's a kind of uh, attitude that also goes through the team, goes to the other guys. When the leader is, looks relaxed, looks confident, is, looks strong, yeah, it gives, gives also the other guys a lot of confidence, of course. What was uh, Adi Engels um, saying that he thinks he has more fun, that he's enjoying it more? Um, and I guess that comes with you know, the experience here of, of having won it twice, having a certain amount of confidence, it being less of a pressure cooker than the Tour de France. I suspect that he's found an environment here that he's very comfortable in. That's the cheers for Jack. That's actually the cheers for Henrik Maas, who steps up onto the podium in, in second place. Nice to hear the crowd acknowledge that result. Yes, Rich, on Roglic, you talk about him being more comfortable, more confident. I was talking to Jan Tratnik, his great friend and compatriot, uh, Slovenian compatriot earlier today, and he, he talked about how the first couple of years of Roglic's career were really dedicated to well, this intense effort, a bit like when he first got into road cycling, his really single-minded effort just to learn how the world of professional road cycling functioned. And Tratnik said that that was a reason why he wasn't as relaxed then as he is now. He's also in an environment, and we keep hearing about this, we keep hearing testimonies to this effect, that Roglic is very well liked in this environment, in this world. Um, we talked about his media relations earlier in the year and how you know, he has a good relationship with the media now. He seems to have a good relationship with his fellow pros. Um, you know, I'm not suggesting that that's, that that's going to be the difference next year between him finishing first and second in the Tour de France. It, it won't be. As I say, th this is a rider now who is really marking, leaving a, a deep imprint on this era in professional cycling. Yeah, for sure he's more comfortable. We need to know that he started cycling really late and like three years ago he still need to learn a lot and he gave everything to learn everything fast as possible and I think uh, now yeah, he's just one of the best bike riders in the world and uh, he deserved to win this Vuelta. And the music uh, left quite a deep imprint in my ears when it struck up there but uh, it's a beautiful scene, isn't it? And night is falling in Santiago de Compostela. Uh, the, the sort of... The, the light shining through the stained glass windows of the facade of the cathedral there. It's a stunning setting. I was saying to you, Daniel, how much more spectacular this is than, say, the finish of the Tour de France on the Champs-Élysées when there's, you know, almost a big crowd, but it's a bit lost 
here we're, we're packed into quite a, a tight square and there's a great atmosphere and it's it's a really really nice setting for the finale of the race and rog mouthing the words of the slovenian national anthem there um well what's uh, from our encounter with the slovenian girls in the bar a few days ago and um, they confirmed another impression we have that roglic is the the king of hearts in uh, slovenia he's 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 winning the popularity battle against Tadej Pogacar for whatever reason. He's somebody who people connect with. He's just uh, picking, I hope that's his child, uh, out of the crowd and bringing him onto the podium. If not, there may be some complaints. And of course, Rich, this, this Vuelta España, as all Grand Tours are, it's been a kind of pilgrimage for us, hasn't it? It's been a journey. It's been a spiritual journey, I hope, for you as well. But in, in the final analysis, what do we make of this Vuelta España in to my mind, it's been a race that's, that's burned and, and flickered very brightly at times. Um, we've had a dazzling last weekend with these, these breathless races, both the front and the back of the, of the race um, in various different groups. The whole, the whole race indeed being on fire. We've had other quieter days and more routine sort of sprint um, old school sprint stages in fact should we i should really be silent now as um rog holds court daniel's gonna repeat this speech a bit later in in the style of roglic what do you See make you next year he said what do you make of this welter rich um, yeah, off. well, just briefly there, you might have heard the, the crowd became quite animated there because that was Baby Rog being lifted high in the air and waving a little mini Slovenian flag. A really nice moment, I have to say. Um, I think it's been... Uh, I don't know. I mean, there hasn't been an awful lot of intrigue around the final destination of the red jersey, has there? And yet, despite that, there have been a lot of fascinating subplot some really great stages i mean even stages that haven't had any bearing on the gc such as friday's stage that magnus court when i made the point earlier on that we, we so rarely see breakaways you know four or five six riders coming to the finish of granted stages i really enjoyed that really enjoyed the penultimate stage as well there have been some great great stages and um, great stories like fabio jacobson you know his comeback um has been a, 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 a great story in this in this race. And then the, the drama around the the withdrawal of Miguel Angel Lopez. I think it also depends <coughs> how you feel about Primoz Roglic and his style of racing. I mean, I, I, well, it's no secret to you that I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy watching him race and I enjoy what's become, in, the, in, the, in professional sport, there are certain athletes, well, five words there, there are certain athletes, protagonist stars, who develop these. Often, it's not you know their whole way of performing, but it's a, a, a part of what they do that becomes synonymous with them. You know, you can talk about the Ali Shuffle, the Jordan Dunk, or um, that you know the Tiger Woods Stinger. I know that means nothing to you, but you know this way that Primoz Roglic has, and we sort of joke about it and we're flippant about it. But this, what I call roglification, you know, the the clinical way in which he can hunt down someone who's up the road or. Or, you know he can he can snatch victory from the jaws of another rider a rival um, I think it has become kind of again iconic of this age of of Roglic's reign 
Yeah, and it was almost uh, the perfect ending, wasn't it? The way he hunted down Henrik Maas in the time trial and, and, and just appeared on his shoulder on the climb up the line. That, that was sort of just the trademark Roglic, wasn't it? A perfect ending to a Vuelta that, where he's, you know, a very, very deserving winner. And I, and I think people, I think ever since the Tour de France last year in 2020, people have been warming a lot to Roglic, enjoying his successes because they know all about his very public kind of failures and disappointments. And I guess the thing that we all wish for and hope for is to see a fully fit and crash-free Roglic take on an equally fit and informed Pogacar at the Tour de France, to see them both at their very best go head-to-head. That, that's the that's, this, that's the, the thing that cycling fans will be most wanting to see, I guess. Well, Rich, I think that's adios from us, isn't it? It is, Daniel. As, as is traditional, we need to say a few thank yous to people. Um, I want to say thank you, first of all, actually, to Itzy, whose voice uh, introduces our Vata coverage. It's her birthday tomorrow. So happy birthday, Itzy. She's my sister-in-law as well. And uh, she's been the voice of our Vuelta coverage for several years now. Very grateful to her. Very grateful also to Alistair Lloyd-Jones, who's been helping us. Bye, Hugo. Hugo Korovitz there, heading off into the night. Um, I want to say a big thanks to Alistair Lloyd-Jones, who, since the Giro, has been a huge help with us on the social media side, the marketing side, and just thinking about what we're doing. Um, so thank you, Alistair. You're a huge help. Simon Scarsbrook is the illustrator whose illustrations of our audio diaries of, of us and of our Vuelta artwork um, has been such a, has, has really enhanced our coverage as well. Stacy Snyder, of course, for making the beautiful mugs and cappuccino sets and raising so much money for good causes. Our diarists, we've had three auto di- audio diarists at this year's Vuelta. James Knox, James Knox sent us a, a, a final diary entry last night. Let's hear a little clip from that. I'll be honest, I feel like it's the most of like mentally and physically I've struggled in a race today as ever before, really. I was sort of defeated on the bus this morning, you know, the DSs and riders trying to have a laugh and a joke, trying to get me up, uh, you know, get me in the mood, but I just could not, could not do it. I was so defeated, so down, I was depressed. Uh, Mum and Dad were at the start as well. I think they could see it in my eyes. I was just, just didn't want to do it. Yeah, it's sort of hard admitting that, but that's the truth, to be honest. Well, as, as ever with James, real honesty and candour there, and there's more of that in our final episode of Kilometre Zero, which will be out on Tuesday. Uh, also, Pavel Sivakov. Um, let's hear a bit from Pavel as well. I uh, always enjoy doing these this little diaries, you know, it's, it's like kind of um, a therapy. No, not a therapy, but, you know, you, you just uh, talk about stuff, you know. It's probably like writing, sometimes it helps. Just thinking is not the same. When you let it out, it's, it's a bit different and actually makes you reflect maybe a bit differently. Enjoy that one. Uh, cheers for listening. Uh, I guess that will, will be in the last diaries for this season. And yeah, hope to be back uh, next, next year. Cheers, guys, and have a good one. Thanks, Pavel. I'm glad you found keeping the diaries helpful. And John Bo of uh, Team Uskatel Uskadi. Thanks very much indeed, Tim. Thanks to our sponsors, Super Sapiens and Science and Sport. Thanks very much to Mass Imas, who provide the music for our coverage. Thank you to David Luxton, always a great support and help to the Cycling Podcast. Thanks to our producers, John Mooney. I asked them all, our producers today, how many grand tours they've done. John Mooney, our original producer, 
This was his 21st Grand Tour with the Cycling Podcast. Will Jones, this was his 16th. Adam Bowie, it was his 18th. Tom Wally, his 19th. And Hugh Owen, our latest producer, his third. Um, they all do a great job. They've never let us down, our producers, and we wouldn't be able to produce a nightly episode without them. We're running a Peddler de Charme poll at the moment um, for our Stacey Snyder mug. Gino Mader is leading that and looks likely to win it. He's the best young rider here as well. Daniel, we're going to call it a wrap from uh, Santiago de Compostela. I think we are, Rich. We're going to head off into the night, into the night of Santiago de Compostela. And we're going to do what a lot of those pilgrims, I think, I suspect, do when they arrive here. And probably going to have a drink. Cheers. Cheers, Rich. Vamos de...